Bam Radio Network. Things are out of control in the media. My kids are going to see things. They're probably going to be sexually active anyway. So what I really need to do is just get them to a clinic, get them to a doctor. Given the fact that a lot of teenage boys and girls are going to see a lot of sexual imagery, how is that going to affect their lives, their sexual lives in particular, when they're 30 and 40 years old? You know, we read so much about adults and parents and businessmen, even the president, having difficulty restraining their sexual desires. And clearly the kids get the message that it's okay if I just have sex with whomever, when whomever, because that is the norm. You're listening to Parents Smarter with Meg Meeker. Dr. David Walsh, you are an expert in neurodevelopment of teenagers in particular and have a lot of great advice for parents on how to influence their kids' behavior, helping parents understand what's going on in the teen brain. Many parents these days are concerned because there's such an exponential rise in the amount of sex and sexual content that kids see in uh, the media, whether it's hearing it through the radio, watching it on television. How did this happen? Meg, if we take a look at the media, what the media is really trying to do is to get attention. So the first job, if I'm in charge of a television program, for example, my first job is really to get and hold people's attention long enough for the advertisers to get their message in front of them. You know, so, you know, some people, for example, might think that the primary goal of television is entertainment, but it's not. The primary goal is to deliver eyeballs to advertisers. So what they have to do then is to get our attention. The one way to get attention is to deliver an emotional jolt. So if I want to get someone's attention, I'm going to bypass the cortex of the brain where thought takes place, make a beeline for the limbic system. So I want to deliver an emotional jolt. But I don't just want to deliver any old emotional jolt. What I want to do is deliver cheap emotional jolt because that's how I make the most money. Maximum jolt for the least amount of money. And when you put that formula together, then some of the jolt factors that fit the bill are things like violence and sex. And if we're talking about the impact of media images on sex, what it does is it normalizes casual sex. It normalizes risk-free, no-responsibility sex. That's where the real impact is. And then when you combine that with a teenage brain that is very, very interested in sex just because of what's going on in their brain, because the awakening of sexuality is a main feature going on in the teenage brain. And it's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. But very, very important that at that time that they be getting messages and conversations about how to manage that in a healthy, responsible way. Well, unfortunately, that conversation is not happening in enough families. And so what happens is that a lot of kids start to get their information from their peers and from the media. What is a parent to do and has the normalizing of so much sexual behavior in our kids changed the way parents talk to their kids and teach them about sex? Well, unfortunately, Meg, one of the things that we American parents, and I put myself in that, I'm part of that too. If we were to give ourselves a report card on talking to our kids about sex and sexuality, it's clear that the report card would show an F. And the reason I say that is because the research shows that's what the kids tell us. Only 19% of American teenagers report that they have good communication about sexuality with a trusted adult. 
only 19%. That means the other 81% don't report that they have good communication. And so because there's not good communication, then they start to get their information, their norms, their attitudes from the popular culture. That's where the media becomes so powerful. To answer your question, so what do we do? What we parents need to do is start to be able to have good conversations with our kids about sex and sexuality. We don't want to wait until our kids are teenagers to do that. What we want to do is have a long track record of being able to talk about that, not in big conversations, but in many, 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 many conversations. And we also know, Meg, that from the, we know from the research that that is the big difference between how we communicate with teenagers in America and how parents communicate with teenagers in other cultures. Because one of the things that puzzles a lot of people is that why in the United States do we have the highest teen pregnancy rate in the industrialized world? Why in the United States do we have the highest rate of sexually transmitted diseases among teenagers? Well, you know, for a long time, what the researchers thought, well, that must mean that American kids are engaged in a lot more sexual activity than kids in other countries. It turns out that that's not the case. It turns out that the age at which kids start to engage in some sexual behavior and the frequency is relatively very, very similar across those 18 industrialized countries. What's different is the communication. Because what we really need to do is get a lot better at communicating with our kids. My sense, um, and I, I would love your take on this, is that many uh, parents are very frightened about what's going on. They're afraid to talk to their kids about sex. And they feel, you know what, things are out of control in the media. My kids are going to see things. They're probably going to be sexually active anyway. So what I really need to do is just get them to a clinic, get them to a doctor. My concern about that is that we're really lowering expectations of our kids' behavior. Can you comment on that? We can't just throw up our hands. We are going to let Hollywood determine our sexual values for our children. No one wants to do that. And so I think we do have to step up, and we have to step up in a couple ways. One is that we do need to be monitoring what it is that our kids watch on television, the video games that they play. Meg, let me use this example. If someone came to my house tonight, knocked on the door and said, hey, do you mind if I come in and talk to your kids? Well, first of all, I probably never let them in, but let's just assume for a second that I did. And then they said, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave because I'd like to have a private conversation with your kids. And if for some crazy reason I let them do that and then came back and found out that this guest was encouraging them to engage in behaviors that I completely disagreed with, what would I do? Well, I never would have let them in the first place, of course. But if that were the case, I would throw them out of the house as fast as I could. What we need to understand is that all of the screens that are now part of kids' lives are teachers. All media is educational. The question is, what is it teaching? And so we have to be willing to do the hard work of saying, you know, I know that that's a popular video game, but you can't play it because it's rated for adults. Dr. Walsh, you know, we read so much about adults and parents and businessmen, even the president, having difficulty restraining their sexual desires. And clearly the kids get the message that it's okay if I just have sex with whomever, when whomever, because that is the norm. And I think that media really 
uh, reinforces that sense of norm as you've so beautifully articulated. How then, when the media's established a norm and about half of our high school students are sexually active, how then do we go and communicate to kids who aren't sexually active or who want to stop? I want you to live differently than the norm that you're accepting out there. That, I think, is a real challenge for parents. What do you say to parents like that? I think it is absolutely a challenge. And uh, to a certain extent, then, what we're really saying is that we're telling our kids that what we want them to be is abnormal. We want them to act differently than maybe a lot of people in the culture do. And that, I think, is something that we do need to be honest about, is that the norm is not necessarily healthy. We're paying a very big price. We have the highest rate of teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases in the industrialized world. So I don't think that I, as a parent, want to say, well, everybody's doing it, so therefore, you know, it's hopeless. We just need to go along with it. I, I think what we want to be able to communicate with our kids is higher expectation. What, here's what we know from a lot of research, is that what kids will do is they will respond to realistic but high expectations. The goal of parenting is not necessarily to just go away, uh, go along with the norm. The goal of parenting is to, how do we, what kind of adults we want our kids to be? And what we do now and the messages that we give them and the behavior that we reinforce that starts to lay the groundwork for the kind of adults that we, you know, that we hope that they become. If we want our kids to turn out to be adults who take relations seriously, who are faithful, who are honest, have all of those traits of character, that's not going to happen by accident, and it's not going to happen by just mimicking a lot of the behavior and values that we see in the media and the popular culture. It's basically calling them and providing an example of a higher calling. My experience with teenagers in particular is that they they want to join the norm and they want to be accepted. However, they want to also boast about being very different than other kids. And one of the things that I think parents can be challenged to do is to say, this is the norm for media and this is the norm for our culture. But you are not the norm. You are smarter and you are wiser. Do you think that that type of advice to kids can help or is that being unrealistic? This all needs to be a conversation. You know, as soon as we start to lecture our kids, as soon as we start to deliver the sermon, we know what happens. Their eyes roll to the back of their head and they stop listening. It needs to be an ongoing conversation and there need to be, you know, there need to be many conversations. And what we need to remember is that a big part of communication is listening. It's not just what we say, but listening to our kids. I think it's also living an example before your kids. And I think that that's a a real tough one um, for for many parents. Dr. Walsh, I have heard you talk a lot about hardwiring of the brain, uh, particularly in teenagers, and how what teenagers see on television um, gets hardwired into the brain. Given the fact that a lot of teenage boys and girls are going to see a lot of sexual imagery, now they understand that having 32 partners like Jennifer Aniston did in the Friends show is the norm. If this is hardwired into a teenage girl or boy's brain, how is that going to affect their lives, their sexual lives in particular when they're 30 and 40 years old? I don't think, Meg, that I would say that these things are hardwired. 
Uh, the good news is we're talking about things that are software. Now, whatever we do a lot of, of course, is what the brain gets good at. That is a basic, one of the basic principles of how our brain works is the neurons that fire together, wire together. So if we spend a lot of time doing certain things, whether it's playing tennis or whether it's working on math problems, the more we do, the better we get. Well, that's also true in terms of attitudes and values. So as those become firmer, then that is going to start to influence the behavior, you know, later on in life, too. Well, I thank you for advice. Any thoughts about parents often ask how much time is okay for my teen to spend watching television, watching movies, staying in front of the Internet? And they ask for specifics. How would you respond to that question? I always respond by saying I think the American Academy of Pediatrics has a good guideline. And what it is, is under two, very limited, no media or technology under the age of two. Preschool, one hour entertainment media a day. School age, two hours entertainment media a day. Now, that's, if I'm working on the internet to do a homework assignment, that doesn't count. But two hours of entertainment media a day is probably a reasonable amount for kids. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today. This program is produced by Jack Street Media as part of the Affiliate Nanocasting Network. Thanks for listening.